0: What they seem to have an awful lot of time for is watching, uh, being in front of screens. Now these surveys are not so sophisticated that they tell us what they're watching or what sort of devices they're using. But for these prime age men who are uh, neither employed nor in education and training, they say that they're spending about 2,000 hours a year watching stuff at home. Right. It's like a full-time job.
1: Welcome to Acted Line, a podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In 2016, Nick Eberstadt's book Men Without Work: America's Invisible Crisis brought to light the grim reality that millions of working-age men were retreating voluntarily from the labor force. Although this trend was widely overlooked for decades, Eberstadt's searing analysis finally made it impossible to ignore. Today, six years and one catastrophic pandemic later, the male exodus from work has not only intensified, but has spilled over into new demographics, including women and workers over the age of 55. By most reports, America now has something on the order of 11 million open jobs, yet millions of men and women sitting jobless on the sidelines. Now, in the newly re-released Men Without Work post-pandemic edition, Eberstadt Marshall's newly released data to explain how this sad state of affairs came to be, what it means for American society, and what it portends for the country's economic future. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at actinorg podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Nicholas Eberstadt holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, where he researches and writes extensively on demographics and economic development generally, and more specifically, on international security in the Korean Peninsula and Asia. Domestically, he focuses on poverty and social well-being. Dr. Eberstadt is also a senior advisor to the National Bureau of Asian Research. His many books and monographs include Poverty in China, The Tyranny of Numbers, the end of North Korea, the poverty of the poverty rate, and Russia's peacetime demographic crisis. Mr. Eberstadt has a PhD in political economy and government, an MPA from the Kennedy School of Government, and an AB from Harvard University. In addition, he holds a Master's of Science from the London School of Economics. In 2012, Mr. Eberstadt was awarded the prestigious Bradley Prize. His most recent book from 2016, is Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis, which is being re-released with a new introduction addressing the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on that problem. Nicholas Eberstadt, welcome to Act in Line. Hey, thank you for inviting me. So your book, Men Without Work, uh, you've updated it for a post-pandemic edition. Let's start with... The original publication, uh, tell us what the book was about and the state of Men Without Work when it was originally published.
0: So the book uh, was released in 2016 and its subtitle was was Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis. Uh, I tried to highlight a problem that had been too long ignored. Which was the gradual collapse of work for prime age men, for men in the prime of life, twenty-five to fifty-four, uh, in the labor in the labor bureau's uh, designation. Uh, this is a problem which had been gradually building for half a century. By the time that I wrote this book, work rates for American men of this age, this key component of our labor force and society were down below the level that they were at in early 1940, which is to say that they were at, uh, they were mirroring the levels from the end of the great depression. And most of this collapse of work was not due to unemployment, um, It was due mainly to a flight from work, a retreat or exodus from the labor force that had begun in the 1960s and in a sort of almost uncanny way, kind of like uh, headed up without cease until 2016. And by the time that I uh, came out with this book, um, well over 10% of the uh, civilian, non-institutional, prime-age men, I'm sorry to throw verbiage at you, but well over a tenth of prime-age men in uh, civil society uh, were neither working nor looking for work. Uh, There are more than three times as many uh, out of the labor force altogether, neither working nor looking for work, as technically unemployed without a job and looking for work. So if you were of the disposition to look at the unemployment rate as the measure of health for uh, the workforce, you were fighting the wrong war. You were fighting the last one. You were missing three quarters of the problem that we were dealing with. And that's what I tried to focus attention and concern on.
1: You said that this begins in the 1960s and then just continues to increase over time into 2016 when the book comes out. Uh, We'll get to what the pandemic did to this problem as well. What was – I'm sure there is not a single cause for this. What are some of the causes for why these prime working age men were leaving the workforce and not seeking to reenter it?
0: Uh, terribly important question. And as you intimate for any sort of grand historical change, and we were looking at a grand historical change over the course of half a century, there are probably a lot of different factors involved. Uh, The received wisdom among uh, academic and policy circles at the time that I uh, published this book, was that declining workforce participation for men was mainly being driven by uh, what was called um, economic and structural change, uh, which is to say uh, less demand for low-skilled work, decline of manufacturing, uh, globalization, trade, outsourcing of work overseas, um, other things like that. Uh, and of course, there's some truth in that. Of course, that's part of what we've seen kind of everywhere in all industrialized countries. But it's, uh, it doesn't explain uh, a lot of what's happened, and maybe it doesn't explain most of what's happened, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, if what we were confronting in the United States was predominantly a demand-driven problem, less demand for work for men, uh, we'd expect this kind of to follow the business cycle. We'd expect there to be booms and busts, and for things to look worse in recessions and better in flush times. This Uh, trajectory of flight from work this uh this path of exit from the labor force is almost a straight line between 1965 and 19 and 2016 when i wrote that book um you can't tell when the recessions were. You can't tell when China entered the World Trade Organization. You can't tell when we came up with disruptive technologies. So that's a little bit of a problem. Um, no less of a problem is the fact that all that we have a national labor market, uh, and you know. I learned economics back in the Stone Age, of course. But back in the Stone Age, we're taught that markets seek equilibrium after shocks. But there were persisting differences in workforce participation from one state to the other in the USA that were getting more and more and more extreme from the 80s on to the present. Uh, and, And there were enormous differences in workforce participation between states that were adjacent to each other, like Maine and New Hampshire or West Virginia and uh, Virginia, Uh, almost as if God hadn't invented U-Hauls yet. So something else was going on that wasn't being explained by the conventional wisdom. And that was what I was trying to get at.
1: How much do you think the Change around the concept of marriage has impacted this as well. So we see over time that uh, younger people have delayed both uh, getting married and having children until later in their lives. People aren't getting married in kind of early to mid twenties, pushing off to later twenties into their thirties. I, I would think for for men, you know, one of the civilizing things in Men's lives is often getting married and having those responsibilities. And I, I believe it's your AEI colleague Yuval Levin who points out that you don't find a lot of single men who coach Little League. You know, the, they, they do those kinds of things because of the familial expectations that come with getting married and having a family. So the, the responsibility one would have to you know, seek gainful employment because of the responsibility you have to others as a result of being married, what, if any, impact do you think this is having on this phenomenon?
0: Absolutely huge impact. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, any, uh, anything you look at, no matter how you parse the figures, no matter which groups you look at. Um, never married men always have lower workforce participation than their married counterparts. And also, um, even, leave aside the marital status question, uh, guys who are living under the same roof as children always have higher rates of workforce participation than counterparts Without the kids there, Uh, this goes back to the 1960s. We have seen a gradual decline, uh, even for uh, work rates and labor force participation rates for married men, for well highly educated married men, but much, much, much smaller. Than for unmarried, less educated men, and for the for guys who are less educated and never married, the the bottom has really dropped out in workforce participation. Um, by the way, one of the things which we would have maybe expected to see if we really believed this, uh, economic and structural change notion uh, explained more or less everything that had happened over the last 50 years, might have expected a certain amount of homogeneity in the labor force participation patterns for men with less skills, like let's say guys who never graduated from high school. But within the high school dropout group of prime age guys, uh, labor force participation rates vary radically. If you were born overseas and you're married, your labor force participation rates be pretty much like college-educated, domestically born, you know, domestic uh, Native-born Amer- Native Americans. Um, on the other hand, if you were Uh, born in the U.S. and you didn't have a high school degree and you weren't married, you had less than 50-50 chance of even being in the labor force. And if you were uh, born in the U.S. and you were a high school dropout, but you were married your labor force participation rate would be way higher than that. It wouldn't look so great, but be way higher than that. Now, you know, we can get very um, assistant professor-ish about that. And we can say, what are the causes and what are the consequences here? But it's clearly the case that family structure is a major predictor of involvement in the workforce,
1: so this phenomenon starting in the 1960s, the, what immediately precedes that is, of course, the end of the Second World War and uh, men returning home from overseas, which also coincides uh, with the time that women begin to really enter the workforce. What, if any, impact does women entering the workforce have on this phenomenon?
0: Very interesting question. So um, as, uh, as we guys know, Um, women have always worked. It's just that they didn't usually get paid for it until after World War II. And after World War II, there was this, um, huge, uh, movement into the paid labor force by, uh, adult women, uh, began in the forties and, uh, was on the upswing until around the uh, beginning of this century. Trends haven't been quite so good since then. Uh, if women were just displacing men, uh, taking men's jobs, uh, we would have expected the work rate or the labor force participation rate for the adult population to be flat over this long period of time, right? Because, you know, well, one for one. But it wasn't that way. Um, the national work rate and the national labor force participation rate rose uh, quite dramatically between the late 40s and the say the year 2000 which meant that women were supplementing men in the labor force they're augmenting since the year 2000 we've seen a drop in labor force participation rates and work rates for both men and women so the clearly not taking guys' jobs in the aggregate there. They're bad trends which both groups are suffering from. Um, It's certainly possible that the dynamic changes in our economy are opening opportunities that, uh, that women may capitalize upon better than men or that men may be disadvantaged by these changes in some sort of way back in, back in the day nineteen uh, fifty style manufacturing uh, helped to have a pretty strong physical constitution. There's a lot less of that today. Uh, there's a lot more opportunity in health services and education where perhaps a more empathetic touch uh, is an advantage, but On the whole, I don't think that we see a displacement of men by women in this uh, long post-war period. What's ailing men is ailing men. And now some of what was ailing men may seem to be ailing women too.
1: Could you uh, describe that a little more? What of this phenomenon do you see now beginning to affect uh, women in and out of the workforce? I think that one of the most... um, Troubling um,
0: indications comes from self-reported information by guys who are neither working nor looking for work. the uh, The Bureau of Labor Statistics puts together these annual time use surveys. You know, they're they're used for figuring out you know when people are going to work and you know uh, other things like that. Um, but they also Survey people who are not in the labor force. They survey the entire adult population, and when you look at what guys who are neither working nor looking for work, nor in education or training—you know, this is the so what the Brits call the NEET, N E E T, neither employed nor in education or training—when you look at what they say about what they do between the time they wake up and the time they go to sleep. I think it's pretty troubling. Um, Basically, they report that they don't do civil society. Almost no worship, almost no uh, charitable activity, almost no volunteering. Although you'd think maybe that they've got nothing but time on their hands, they do surprisingly little uh, care for other people in the home. They do surprisingly little housework. Um, They get out surprisingly seldom Um, what they seem to have an awful lot of time for is watching uh, being in front of screens now these surveys are not so sophisticated that they tell us what they're watching or what sort of devices they're using but for these prime age men who are uh, um, neither employed nor in education and training They say that they're spending about 2,000 hours a year watching stuff at home, right? It's like a full-time job. And when you remember that other research has shown that about half of these guys report taking pain medication every day, um, you know, maybe some of it over the counter or whatever, but taking some sort of pain medication every day. You've got this tableau, this portrait uh, of guys who are, you know, not just, uh, you know, sitting home all day, uh, you know, uh, playing, you know, Call of Duty, they're playing Call of Duty stoned. Uh, and on the one hand, this obviously isn't the sort of uh skill augmentation program that's going to get people back into the workforce. And on the other hand, it may be the sort of prep that'll put you on a path towards the awful problem of deaths of despair, which we're suffering in the United States so um, painfully today. This is is the men without work uh, as told by kind of a portion of the program. What We're starting to see now is um, a little bit more of the men without work syndrome among some of the prime age women who are not in the workforce, neither working nor looking for work. And especially for unmarried prime age women not in the workforce uh, without kids at home. Their patterns of self-reported time use are very different from those for their sisters who have kids and are raising kids at home. We're seeing uh, a remarkably high uh, report of what's called, you know, personal care, you know, sleeping an awful lot, uh, uh, not getting out of the house uh, too much. Not helping around the house too much, um, an awful lot of watching screens as well. They haven't um, they haven't reached the men without work level yet, but um, it's maybe a little bit too close for comfort. So I would say um, I'd say if we look at those sorts of um, hints. Um, there's a lot to um, there's a lot that bears watching
1: to again note that you talk about this being a phenomenon that starts in really the 60s and builds up over time i am I'm, I'm glad right there that you just referenced the the use of painkilling medication uh, cuz i i've been fascinated for a while how i think the forms some of our vices take what it has to say about us. If you look at drug culture and what was prominent in, say, the 1980s, um, I think you would have found a lot more people taking something like cocaine, which is a stimulant. It gets you out there doing things you know, faster, more recklessly, but you're, you're getting out and going, right? So not advocating, of course, that people uh, do any of these things. But I, I, what's revelatory about it, I think, is interesting. You see that transform – Into the 2000s where the problem becomes what? It becomes taking painkillers, the kind of thing that makes you check out. I remember reading this piece, again, reference your AEI colleague Yuval Levin, looking at uh, some of these – some trends we see out there that we would normally want to celebrate, right? We're seeing fewer automobile deaths uh, among teenagers. We are seeing uh, fewer uh, young people getting pregnant. We've seen the abortion rate go down among younger people. And on one hand, good. On the other hand, as you've all pointed out in this piece – we're also seeing this because young people are driving less. They are um, – the the rates of uh, sex among young teenagers has been declining. Um, I think obviously that's a different problem but I, I think I see some threads in the attitudes that are informing people – Taking things like painkillers and checking out of society, rather than uh, indulging in a vice that's probably not good to indulge in, but taking things that are stimulants that cause them to go, mm-hmm. go, go. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: for sure. I mean we've we've seen the opioid explosion, the painkiller and uh, illegal opioid explosion. It's been uh, it's been washing over the United States for a generation. I don't know that it's hit its uh, apogee yet. Unfortunately, I mean if we're going to uh, if we're going to go by the uh, mortality statistics, um, drug overdoses are uh, reaching new levels now uh, under the, in, in this uh, pandemic or post-pandemic era. So unfortunately, I don't think that we've reached the high watermark of this epidemic. Like all epidemics, we expect this one to peak and then to recede. But exactly when
1: that happens and how i don't think we uh, i don't think we know quite yet, your description of what these men without work are doing in the the average day and in, in in the fifth chapter of the book uh, it's entitled who is he a statistical portrait of the unworking American man uh, I, I think feel free to expand on that as much as you want but I the question that popped into my mind is you know you're describing the things that they are doing as well as clyquilly like, well, the things that they aren't doing if they're not working obviously that is not a place from which they are deriving you know still got to eat you still got to do a number of things that are going to cost you money how are they sustaining themselves if they're not out in the workforce is it the phenomenon of people living at home with parents and their parents are paying their way um is it government benefit uh is it being on other programs that uh provide them with some kind of sustenance, uh, what is allowing them to sustain this unworking lifestyle?
0: Well, as far as I can tell, uh, as far as I could show in the book, um, it's largely what you might call um, family values, uh, relying upon family if you define family as uh, your kin, your girlfriends, and Uncle Sam. Uh, the role of Uncle Sam, I think, is more important than um, than the received wisdom at the time that I uh, came up with this study might have suggested. And that is because um, America has a an archipelago of uh, government disability programs, and they don't play nice with each other and they don't all talk to each other. And because of this, there's really no central spot in the US government. There wasn't when I uh, published this in 2016, there still isn't now, unbelievably, uh, where you can go and ask how many people in the United States are receiving benefits from one or more disability programs. I was able, kind of, to look at some of that because there is a program, a um, survey, run by the uh, by the Census Bureau, which takes a look at government uh, benefits from different sorts of uh, uh, sectors. And if you include a couple of different things on uh, disability from uh, Social Security Administration and some of the stuff from the Veterans uh, Administration, and uh, one or two of the other ones, which they managed to include in this survey, uh, you see, well, guess what? More than half of the men who are neither working nor looking for work are receiving at least one benefit from one of these programs themselves, and about two-thirds of them live in a home that's receiving a disability benefit, at least one disability benefit. Now, um, that's not going to afford you a princely lifestyle. You you may live in uh, penury, and clearly a lot of these guys are living in a, a misery. We don't distinguish between poverty and misery, but we ought to. People understood that a century ago a lot better than we do today, it seems. Um, One of the other facets of the dependence upon government benefits, which is really tragic and circles back to what we were talking about a moment ago, has to do with uh, the eligibility that uh, is established for enrollees in disability programs in the United States, you could get, for a very long time, uh, you could get um, a prescription to, let's say, uh, Oxycontin for about uh, about $3. Um, And the rest of the... Expense would be paid by Uncle Sam. Uh, and so inadvertently, unintentionally, uh, the U.S. government through its, well, um, its well-intended its um, programs for health care for people who were um, uh, disabled was... Uh, In an awful sort of way financing the opioid explosion as well and uh, in most states those uh, loopholes and snags have been attended to but for a very long period of time this was also part of the problem that befell america
1: is this problem regional in any way? Is it? Is there areas of the country that it is worse in and areas of the country it is better in? Is there any distinction between you know, urban, suburban, and rural areas and the prevalence of this phenomenon?
0: Well, of, of course, I mean, it's a moving target. Uh, I mean, it, it, hasn't, um, it hasn't stayed stationary. But as it unfolded, uh, this chapter of the opioid calamity started out uh disproportionately anglo disproportionately white non-hispanic and disproportionately rural and there were obviously some areas of rural america that were more severely uh stricken than others um and you could more or less guess which they were going to be if you looked at my uh, my colleague um, Scott Winship's work back uh, when he was on the Joint Economic Committee of Congress on the social capital map of the United States, places which had more uh, social capital like I know up where you are in Michigan had less of this places, which had less social capital, like an Appalachia uh, or at least measured social capital, well, um, out in some parts of the uh, Southwest were much harder hit. Uh, the, the tableaus changed as the, um, as fentanyl has become more of a killer and uh, fentanyl has become more of an equal opportunity killer it's gotten more into the inner cities, as you know. Uh, so it's a, it is an ongoing problem that's finding new victims.
1: I want to touch on one other area from uh, the text of uh, the book is originally published in 2016, before we move to what the pandemic has done to this. Uh, chapter nine of the book deals with criminality and the decline of work for American men. What is the, the nexus there between the problem of crime and this phenomenon?
0: I'm really glad you asked that question. When I was doing the uh, original volume, I thought just as kind of due diligence, I should uh, check with the uh, statistical abstract of the United States and go to the chapter where they talk about work rates for um, felons and ex in America. And I found out there was no chapter on that. And then as I looked a little further, I found out no numbers at all in the statistical abstract on the employment profile of ex-cons. And then, in fact, it turned out that the U.S. government didn't keep any records on this at all. They had uh, had some information about people who were on parole and on probation. Of course, they had records on uh, people who were in prison. That's why we know about mass incarceration, which we hear so much about these days. Um, I had to look a little bit further because I had to see if uh, possible to get any sense of what had happened at all. And there were some uh, some independent academic demographers who'd done fantastic work in this area. And what they had shown was absolutely breathtaking. By the year 2010 in their reconstructions of trends, uh, and I think their work is pretty good, um, by 2010, there were almost 20 million adult Americans who had a felony conviction on their record, in their background. Well, I mean, that's uh, that's almost, uh, that meant at the time, there were almost uh, 10 times as many people with felonies uh, in society as a whole as behind bars. And nowadays, if we do a few uh, simple extrapolations back of the envelope, there's probably ten people with felonies in their backgrounds in society as a whole for every one person who's behind bars uh, on a conviction. This means that nowadays, at the time I, at the time the book came out in 2016, maybe one in eight adult guys. Uh, had a felony conviction. Today, it's probably more like one in seven, and it's probably a higher uh, proportion for prime age men. Uh, And this phenomenon is statistically invisible, yet it clearly has an absolutely enormous impact on the men without work problem. During the generation uh, before the book came out in 2016, crime rates had been going down in the United States. Now crime rates are going up. Um, The whole question of uh, gathering evidence for evidence-based policies to um, attempt to reintegrate some of the ex-cons in our society uh, is one that's still a work in progress. And for reasons that still mystify me, there is absolutely no appetite on any part of the political spectrum in the United States for gathering the simple information which would let us know what the employment status is like for people who have felonies in their background, who've been, um, you know, who are released into into general society, uh, we can't do reentry uh, in any sort of more um, foresighted manner if we don't know what the actual circumstances of our population is. And for some reason, we're happy to have this remain in darkness.
1: So it's early twenty twenty. Uh, I actually remember I was living in Chicago at the time. I remember the last quote unquote normal day cause it was, uh, for me it was March 15th, which was my birthday. So it sticks in my mind, uh, I was traveling up to Grand Rapids uh, occasionally. Uh, This was before my family was going to move in the middle of the year up to Grand Rapids. And I had tickets on uh, Amtrak to come up that Sunday evening. And I thought, you know, maybe I should just cancel them and see what happens. And the next day, the world shuts down for uh, because of the spread of COVID-19. What happens next for this phenomenon of men without work?
0: We all all remember where we were when um, the world as we knew it kind of came to a halt. Um, And if we um, uh, allow ourselves to remember the trauma of the time, we'll recall how close it seemed that the uh, U.S. economy and maybe even the global economy came to a collapse with the lockdowns all across our country and all across other countries. Um, Our, um, our policymakers um, decided that we were not going to um, replicate all of the mistakes of the great depression. And so instead of pulling back on the money supply and trying to uh, austerity our way through this crisis, we went all in uh, at the Fed in flooding the U.S. and the world with uh, dollars. And we went all in with fiscal stimulus and support in ways that we'd never tried before, I mean, certainly in peacetime, but never tried before. And so um, the good news was we avoided a second Great Depression. Um But as you might imagine, um, given that all government policies have unintended consequences, the unintended consequences of the greatest peacetime interventions in our history were absolutely enormous. And one of the fascinating things that happened during the... Um, during the pandemic was an in flooding American households with money to keep them spending to keep them liquid uh, and uh, not bankrupt we actually had uh, we actually had transfers going to the American population of a magnitude that were too large for them to spend uh, borrowed government money was sent into uh, into private households in a scale that was (laughs) too much to use. And so in 2020 and in 2021, the private savings rate more than doubled compared to pre-pandemic level. The government transfers meant that we had the highest levels of disposable income in our history, despite being in an economic crisis, uh, after the initial sharp uh, shock of the pandemic, spending levels were also above trend. We were above the pre-pandemic trend during, the, uh, during 2020 and 2021. But the savings rates you know, just exploded. And this meant that at the end of 2021, we had an additional you know, above-trend nest egg of over $2.5 trillion in borrowed government money that had been paid to uh, private homes. And that's entirely apart from the wealth effects of uh, free money on the uh, equity markets and on home prices and so forth. So, um, you know, A funny thing happens. um, If you pay people uh, to do something, uh, sometimes they'll do it. And if you pay people not to work, sometimes that will influence their um, decision-making about um, being in the labor market. And um, we had, as you will recall, this unprecedented program of pandemic unemployment insurance benefits where you didn't actually need to be um, unemployed uh, to receive these $600 a week or later $300 a week. Um, It was basically a kind of a test drive for a UBI, a universal basic income that went on for a year and a half and more. We'll find out more about what its long-term impact is upon US mentality. But for right now, um, what we know is that we have two things. We uh, well, we have two things going on at the same time that are bizarre and unprecedented. The first is a peacetime labor shortage. Um, we have we have about eleven million job openings, um, unfilled jobs in the United States all across the country, all occupational areas, all levels of skills um, that just don't seem to get filled. This has been going on since uh, Labor Day of last year, more or less. And at the same time, we've seen a drop in uh, labor force participation In the United States, that has not returned to pre pandemic levels. Uh, We're about, we're a little over 4 million uh, people short in the labor force of where we would have expected to be now on pre pandemic trends. Some of that is interrupted international immigration to the United States. But if you just look at what the labor force, Workforce participation rates look like now compared to pre pandemic, we're about three or three and a half million million people short in our manpower pool. Um, And here's where things are rather different from before the pandemic. We're now starting to see a new face to the flight from work. Only a very small fraction of this new gap in the workforce uh, can be accounted for by lower work rate participation levels for uh, prime-age men. They've snapped back most of the way to their hardly inspiring pre-pandemic levels. Uh, The majority of the gap is now coming from... uh, men and women over the age of 55, from older workers. Um, And this is quite troubling for a couple of reasons. Uh, One of them is that up until uh, the pandemic struck, uh, the 55 plus group was really the only ray of sunshine in the US uh, labor market picture work rates and labor force participation rates for the 55 plus group had been steadily increasing from the mid-1990s until about 2020, while going in the wrong direction for most other groups. Um, So There are a lot of factors that are involved in this decline in uh, labor force involvement for older American workers. There's probably some COVID shyness. There may be some staying at home to look after others, uh, including long COVID people. Um, But an awful lot of this, I think, has to do with a sort of a decision to... um, take on a sort of a premature retirement on the basis of COVID policy lottery winnings, if you want to put it that way.
1: When we began responding to the pandemic uh, and the circumstances that it created and that were created by the policy responses and uh, immediate choices made to try to mitigate the spread of this virus... um, and of course, feel free to disagree with this, but I've wondered if, you know, recognizing that we were going to have a whole lot of options uh, for things we could do that were probably choices between things that weren't all that great, but, uh, you know, competing all the hard choices in life are between competing good things and competing bad things because the choice between something good and something bad isn't much of a choice. Uh, I had thought at the time perhaps recognizing we were going to end up spending a ton of money on this, no matter what, uh, The better choice would have been to have uh, the government guarantee private payrolls uh, rather than the program that we seem to arrive at, which was these – the PPP loans, which we're now finding out about a lot of the fraud that uh, took place in that, coupled with the unemployment uh, insurance payments that you were talking about as well. But a minimum, if we were going to have the government guarantee private payrolls, you could at least keep people attached to the jobs that they had going into into the pandemic, uh, without having what happened, which was because a lot of these places were closed down, they couldn't open, be open during the pandemic, weren't allowed to be open during the pandemic. Uh, people's employment with them was severed, so now they move on to this kind of government compensation. And when be- places begin to reopen they're not you know they're not attached to this job they had anymore and the ability to go back to it now they're looking for something different. They may end up in this pool of people who just say because I've been given all this money and these benefits i don't need to go look for something and we arrive at this problem do Do you think that approach could have potentially made any difference to this, or were we kind of likely to end up in an awful situation like this, no matter what
0: well i mean we 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 had a policy fog of war problem right i mean it's just it was we were dealing with something that we didn't really understand we needed to make big expensive decisions immediately Uh, there was quite a bit of rancor and contention in american politics at that time as you'll recall um we didn't have we didn't have the circumstances for optimizing policy, <laughs> you know, kind of in front of us. Yeah, and fair enough. In in uh, in retrospect, I think that you and I uh, could see things that we would like to have done um, uh, differently and better. Uh, but if you remember the fear that was in the air and the conf- the mass confusion, um, the. Um, the main um, the main imperative at that time I think to the extent that Washington can hold as much as a single idea in its head at any given time was to do something big fast and expensive and they sure did that um, you know I would say that if we look back at the mistakes of the pandemic era which were multi, uh, multifold, um, the most grievous ones to me i think probably involved uh, schooling and education the the close down and disruption of the education of our young people in the united states is something that's going to cost us for decades and some of the most serious economists who have looked at this question have suggested that the, the disruption of um, of schooling may make the United States poorer by about 4%. I mean, kind of like for not just the rest of our lives, but the rest of these kids' lives. Um, that's an absolutely extraordinary cost. And we, I think in retrospect, um, we're going to regret the, uh, cavalier and arbitrary way that, uh, school shutdowns occurred in too much of the country.
1: So the final chapter, uh, of the book before we get to, and I should note, cause I, I do want people to pick up the book and read it. I, I, I love, uh, where the book also concludes that you include uh, two dissenting opinions uh, from other authors that then you respond to as well. So the, the interrogation of this uh, is really, really interesting and I think a really uh, great and interesting part of the book. But where, where you conclude uh, the first part, uh, the, the part of the original manuscript uh, is with a, a chapter basically on, well, what do we do about this? So now factoring in the problems that have come from the pandemic years uh, and your f- reflections on that chapter and recommendations on what we should do about it now in you know, the year of our Lord, 2022, what do we do about this problem?
0: Well, um, uh in year of our Lord 2022, if I were our Creator, I could do things which I cannot do as a um, ink-stained wretch or a uh, research nerd. I would wave a magic wand and fix the families in the United States. I'm not going to. We're not. That is not part of our policy option set. I'm afraid. Um, I'd also probably want to. Uh, get the United States back to its profile of religiosity of, let's say, 1965. I don't have the uh, the magic wand for that either. So dealing with the real world possibilities, um, certainly we would want to improve the quality of education. Um, we would want to uh, Fill the enormous void of in training and skills and what used to be called vocational. You're not allowed to call it that by um, the educational elite anymore. Uh, but everybody who graduates from high school in the United States or everybody who graduates from school should have a skill. The you know, college isn't for everybody, but everybody should have a skill, and we're not providing that. That's a very big ask, but that would go a long way. Um, we need we need to do something more than tinker around the edges of our dysfunctional uh, disability insurance archipelago. Um, It was set up with good intentions, but now it's subsidizing helplessness and long-term dependence. Um, Starting from scratch, sounds pretty good to me. Implementing a work-first principle, uh, you got the keys to the kingdom come through uh, going to training and showing up at job interviews and showing up at jobs. Uh, it probably be more expensive than what we have now in fiscal terms, but the social benefits, I think, would be much uh, much more uh, clear for the United States. We need to do something about the 20-plus mi- uh, million invisible ex-cons in the United States. I mean, if they're out in society and if they've paid their debt to society, uh, we should be in favor of seeing what can be done to rehabilitate them. If people are menaces to society shouldn't be out there, but if it's possible for rehabilitation, bringing back into families, back into society, back into the workforce, we should be all for that. We should have a little more curiosity about that. We're going to now in 2022 we're going to have to undo some of the damage uh, that was unintentionally uh, inflicted uh, through our massive um, pandemic emergency relief programs. Um, We'll know a little bit more about uh, how bad that damage is in the fullness of time as people spend down their... um, Covid policy lottery winnings, um, but I'd have to mention that in the past, uh, for prime age men, uh, recessions uh, have had very little impact on the flight from work. Um, it's, it has been unaffected, it has been very largely unaffected by good times economically or by bad times economically. Uh, we can do something in civil society uh, to uh, maybe to state the obvious that uh, it is possible for people to have a more complete, more whole life uh, if they choose to work. Because work is a service for others that helps to complete you. Uh, There are no such things as jobs not worth taking any more than there are such things as lives not worth living. And understanding, appreciating, celebrating the dignity of work is something that will contribute to the health of our society. We're going to need that celebration more in the future than ever before as our society ages. As at, we, have a, we have the opportunity for capitalizing upon unlocking the value of health in our nation, which would mean live longer, work longer, Uh, But just how involved people choose to be in the workplace in the years ahead is going to have far-reaching reverberations on other aspects of social health in our country.
1: Nicholas Eberstadt holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, where he researches and writes extensively on demographics and economic development generally, with specific focus on poverty and social well-being. His 2016 book, Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis, was originally published in 2016 and is being re-released with a new introduction addressing the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on the problem. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Line.
0: Hey, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.